Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Thy Strong Word. I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa. We're reading the entire Bible together, chapter by chapter, looking at a new book of the Bible here. This is cool. I really, 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 if you couldn't tell, liked 1 Corinthians, um, and I just—it's one of my favorite books in the New Testament, uh, particularly among Paul's letters. But it's really cool to get back into these stories here, because they're not just stories of cool things that happened, though they are stories of cool things that happened. Uh, but you just get all this uh, sense of like the what was going on and, and, and how people of faith lived, and you just see all these—it just makes more connections than a letter can, the way that a story can. And I think we see that today, and we see the connections, because Samuel— is just one of the most connected figures, I, I think, in the Bible, it, just in general. You know, he doesn't really fit the, the, the mold for a lot of these things. He's not uh, just a priest. He's not uh, really a king exactly, but in some ways he kind of is that too. Um, you know, he, he's, he's just like all these sorts of things, and he exists in this weird time in Israel's history when it, it wasn't during the wilderness wandering, but it wasn't yet in the monarchy with like Saul and David. It was this weird time where the the, the tabernacle was in Shiloh, and it's just I, I don't know. In my mind, it's kind of like this Wild West situation. It's it's really cool, um, and there's gonna be a lot to talk about today as we get started with the birth of Samuel. We'll see a lot of connections, I think, to John the Baptist and Christ in the New Testament. But without spoiling anything else, uh, I want to introduce our guest today. We have joining us. We have got. Paul Kane, pastor at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Sheridan, Wyoming, joining us again. Good morning, brother. Happy to have you starting a new book of the Bible with us. Yeah, I'm very excited to lay the foundation for lots of stories to come. Yeah, well, and it really is a lot, and maybe more than we realize, because, you know, we, we call these, uh, you know, first and second Samuel— but it's kind of a, it's in some ways, it's sort of a weird way of looking at it because while Samuel is sort is. of pre predominant in just First uh, Samuel, he's not really so much in Second Samuel. And in fact, in the Septuagint, uh, we keep going and we call these First, Second, Third, and Fourth Kingdoms. Right. Uh, originally, what we call First and Second Samuel was one book, unlike First and Second. Um, Corinthians in the New Testament. Right. And the break, it's a very fundamental place with the death of King Saul and David becoming king of Judah. Right. So, so as in that way, um, you know, it's like you were saying, it really is like just the beginning of many stories and not just the story of just Samuel. You know, we call it Samuel like it's maybe about him, but it's just Samuel gets the ball rolling. But this is going to be the stories of, of Samuel, of Saul, of, of David, of Solomon. I mean, it's just, it's just going to keep on going. And it's kind of it's, it's sort of like the Pentateuch in that way, in that, you know, it, it, it's not just really about one single figure. It just can't keep rolling. Right. It, there's so many things that could be said. We don't hear much from Samuel at all in verse 1. It's really uh, the time before his birth and him being given to the Lord. Um, Eli gets introduced here, too. There's a lot about him. Samuel is the last of the judges in 
a similar way we often think of John the Baptist as the last of the Old Testament style prophets. Right. And so in that way, that's yeah, another um, analogy between him and John the Baptist. And, and, there, and there's quite a few, I think. Um, I, I think that we'll, we'll see that um, later, especially too, how the, the role of Samuel as the, the prophet who critiques or holds the king accountable uh, and how, you know, uh, John the Baptist continues that role, um, even, even leading up to his, his death, ultimately. I mean, it's just, just is a lot, a lot of connections. Um, but so, yeah, I hope to kind of make some of those connections today, uh, just kind of get a situation about, okay, hang on, well, what's Shiloh again? Why, why is that where this is all taking place? Well, not Jerusalem. Uh, kind of reacquaint ourselves with this stuff uh, that we kind of got a little bit of a taste for when we were reading Joshua. Uh, and then also maybe to kind of talk about some of these specific things like, Okay, you know this story. I guess kind of opens up with this, um, with with this you know particular Ephraimite, and why is that significant? And, and what's it, what's the significance really of Samuel's name, which uh, is is uh, one of the big uh, parts today. So lots, lots of cool things to be getting into today. Uh, but before we get before we get into those things, brother, would you uh, open us up with a prayer? Certainly. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. God the Father Almighty, maker of all things, you looked on the affliction of your barren servant Hannah, and did not forget her, but answered her prayers with a gift of a son. So hear our supplications and petitions and fill our emptiness. Grant us trust in your provision, so that we, like Hannah, might render unto you all thankfulness and praise and delight in the miraculous birth of your Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. All right, so uh, just kind of last last kind of introductory remarks here before we actually read it. I think the big one you just mentioned, you know, this is the, the basically the close of the, the age of the judges, and um, Samuel's going to be the, the last judge, and then after him we get, we get kings. So this is a really big moment, in, uh, b- big transition in the history of Israel. What else should we be kind of thinking about, um, just kind of in terms of kind of big stage-setting pieces before we read the chapter? Well, it's hard not to think of Christ as we consider the roles of Samuel— in First Samuel in particular. Um, you've got lots of talk about altar and priest and king. And Samuel, uh, as the last of the judges, he's priest. He's going to offer a sacrifice being of the tribe of Levi. That comes up in chapter 7. He's definitely a prophet. That's more something for a couple days from now, chapter 3. And he is a kingmaker. And we see this uh, a couple of times in the book. So prophet, priest, and king, these are Christological titles. Samuel prepares the way, and quite the transitional figure, uh, as, as you've pointed out. Very important to understand him, and sometimes we don't understand him even as well as uh, Nathan and David, uh, or even as well as John the Baptist. Yeah, I think I think that's helpful. Kind of understanding just how in the middle um, or transitional or 
just kind of how, how much overlap there is with just kind of the situation and also his his own identity and role as we read this. So, right. you know, you don't want to be thinking to yourself, like, no, hang on a second. You know, is this guy a prophet? Is he a priest? Right. I mean, where's the king? Like, if we're asking those questions, we're, we're, we might get ourselves thrown off. This is a, a very fluid, I think maybe that's the best word for it, maybe fluid situation. Um, and also these, yeah. these roles were fluid as well. And, and so it is a picture, I think, like you were saying, that shows how all these things can be fluidly maintained in Christ and how it's not like a, a contradiction or an innovation if we say that he has— um, all these roles, or that he's like the perfect prophet, priest, king, etc. It, it, it shows how all, they all can be held together, actually. Um, right. But, but yeah, let's. There's not a separation say, of powers as there would be under yeah. the American Constitution. That, that's Even right. though he that's may right. be a judge, he's he's more than just the judicial branch. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, and then that's a good point too, right? That that the term for judging, right? It, it it's less to do with our sense of judging and more like in the sense that Moses was a judge, right? That, you know, yeah. Moses would like judge yeah. the cases between the people, but that's because functionally he was the king, you know? So, I mean, it's uh, it's just, again, Indeed. just kind of like you were saying, it's we shouldn't go and necessarily draw too much analogy to our own political situation. But I, I think all of this stuff is going to speak to our own political situation in the sense of, uh, this is all getting at really, I think all these, especially opening chapters, uh, in first Samuel, you know, how do God's people interact with political power? Um, and, and what's the correct use of political power and, and, and how should we, uh, yield, uh, wield it? And to what extent do we need to react to corruption as we're going to see, uh, very quickly here in first Samuel, um, to what extent do we just yield power? So, I mean, like, it, it is going to, I think, in the end, end up inter intersecting our own uh, times and situations a lot. But uh, without any further ado, let's go ahead and read this. First Samuel chapter 1 in the English Standard Version. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Sophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jerah. Jeraham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously, to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and wouldn't eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why, why don't you eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, 
O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew his, Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time Hannah received, conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up, with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. They then slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli, and she said, O oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. So uh, even though um, Elkanah, her husband, uh, Samuel's father, uh, is, is in some ways the, the, the character that we're introduced to first, uh, really Hannah, I think, is, is the one who is is kind of the, the star of the show um not 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 in any way yeah. self-aggrandizing but is, is kind of the one that we're sympathizing with and we're really tracking with who's um the story is all kind of hinging on here and we're going to get that next time especially where you have um hannah's prayer which is is a uh, i mean it's so huge how this just pops up throughout the bible um it's just uh, uh it just makes it, it's a it's a template for so much that comes later but yeah, I mean, this is a this is a fascinating story because in in some ways it's kind of like Ruth, how the story is kind of about a um, a, a woman in a in a bad situation, like a you know, and 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 we're tracking with her, and you know, she's she's humble, and we we pity her, and it's I mean, it's just kind of striking all by itself, really, that like you know, in this ancient context, yeah. you've got this story in in the Bible 
And it's really kind of focused on the plight of this poor woman. Very much so. Um, in verse 8, her husband sounds kind of tone deaf. Uh, <laughs> not the most compassionate words that we might expect. Uh, from verse 2, we might get the impression that Hannah was the first wife, and then he married another, which is uncomfortable on so many levels yeah. uh, for us as Christians. Um we really feel for her. Our hearts go out for her. And we see what her husband tries to do, the double portion, whether that was actually twice as much as the other wife got, uh, isn't as important. But he he tried, but boy, he does seem kind of tone deaf uh, in his words. This Ephrathite. Yeah. Um, he's he seems to live there, but looking at First uh, Chronicles 6, he's a Levite by tribal affiliation and descent. So he's kind of living where he needs to live since the Levites didn't really have their own territory like the, um, the other right. tribes. Right, right, yeah. We, we, we saw that, especially in Joshua, how the, the Levites were— were scattered. They had cities all over the place, and, and they it was you know by lot that they had certain cities um, ceded to them from each of the um, rest of the tribes that had inherited land, and, um, and and so right. So even though this this takes place in the hill country of Ephraim, um, as you were saying, the, the 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 proper tribal affiliation seems to be of Levi, which uh, of course lends itself to um the the priestly role and, and in fact you, you've got like very um i mean and that that priestly role is is pretty prominent here also even uh, not not necessarily with uh samuel uh quite yet but like just just dealing particularly with eli uh whose sons oh, we're going to talk more about his sons later but i mean they're named hophni and phineas and now phineas i mean that's a particularly uh prominent name i mean that that was uh one of the one of the high priests uh, was the uh, the grandson of Aaron, maybe the great grandson. So I mean, like we're we're definitely thinking tribe of Levi. Um, you, you know, like there's a there's a very proper line of um, of, of succession, and and the, and the roles in that sense are kind of clear when it comes to uh, you know like what what family you're born into and, and what that means about what you're supposed to do. Indeed. So they're introduced as priests of the Lord, and Elkanah also sacrificed. And to show that he is a Levite, we're told in verse 4, he would give portions uh, to his wives and um, sons and daughters there. And only the, the priests receive those portions. So that really helps nail it down that he's a, truly a Levite. So, so then this is this is interesting. You know, we're, we're kind of given all of this um, this information about you know who he is, which um, what, what would seem to be significant because of exactly what you were saying that you know if, if he is a a priest, we we want to know that he's leg a legitimate priest um, because later on this is going to come up to the idea of well is Samuel legitimately a priest right? 
Um, and, and so yeah. it's, it's like how you have with Aaron and Moses, right, in Exodus, how you get their, um, their ancestry that sketches its way back, um, you know, not, not giving like all the names, but traces it, you know, loosely back to Levi to, to show the, the legitimacy um, of that role. So, so we, we kind of have, okay, uh, or <laughs> it's interesting because it's like we have all the credentials there so that, you know, if this man has a son, we would expect that he could legitimately be a priest. Um, but, we're, but we're told, you know, like you were saying, well, he has two wives, <laughs> so maybe we should talk about that. Um, and, and, and there's uh, only children by, by one of the two wives. So this, uh, this feels a lot like the situation with, uh, with Jacob, right, with his two wives. Um, I mean, it feels a little bit like the situation with Abraham, right? Um, and his wives. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is not an unfamiliar situation in the Bible that you've got two wives and only one of them can have children. Right. Um, uh, It's a familiar situation, but it is an uncomfortable one because, uh, Therefore, a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Mm-hmm. That is how it's supposed to be, Genesis 2.24. That gets quoted in all of the main readings you'd hear at a, a Lutheran Christian wedding, uh, mm-hmm. Ephesians 5, and also uh, our Lord's quote of that in Matthew, um, plus what God has joined together, let no one put asunder. You have the um, that one flesh union of one man, one woman for life upheld in the New Testament when Paul instructs Timothy and Titus that one of the qualifications of pastors, of deacons, is that they be the husband of one wife, man of one woman, literally in the Greek. Mm-hmm. But we see this with um, uh, Sarah and Hagar as well with uh, the interpretation of that and another of of Paul's epistles. That's very, very powerful, the two mountains, the two women. And the rivalry that you have here is also very, very uncomfortable. It sounds like something from a polygamous sitcom that Mm -hmm. uh, her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her. That behavior, as well as what we see from Eli and his sons later on, comes at such a contrast to this priestly office of the sacrifice of everything that's been in place since the tabernacle, the temple tent, was placed at Shiloh all the way back there in um, in Joshua at the beginning of yeah. the wars of the Lord, and to have it move from where it is now in First Samuel 1 to where it will be at the end of Second Samuel, Jerusalem, shows you something major about these events of the shift of the main, main sanctuary and the movement of God's gracious presence. Right. Yeah, this is a, um, it is interesting how, like you were saying, on the one hand, there's this, there's this tension that on the one hand, it's like, okay, well, 
we have Levitical priests, right? It's in Shiloh, which is, you know, where, you know, Joshua moved the tabernacle to, right? So, like, on the one hand, it's like, I mean, I mean, they are worshiping also the Lord, right? So, and, and they're going up um, yeah. as required, right? Like, we have those those uh, certain festivals every year where um, the, the men are to, to go up, right, regardless of where they're at. And so this is good. You know, he's living in Ephraim, but he goes up to, to Shiloh, where the tabernacle is at. So, I mean, there's a lot of good things, but as you are saying— there are a lot of things that actually, in the context of the story, are actually just meant to indicate that things are not quite right. And, uh, you know, we, we shouldn't take the fact that they're mentioned in the story as a tacit permission or endorsement, but um, th this is a warts and all story, and we want to talk about some of those warts a little bit more. But we, it's time for our break, so hold that thought, everybody. We're looking at First Samuel now, chapter 1 on Nice Strong Word. We'll be right back. I'm Pastor Ken Bomberger. Join me weekday mornings at 7.15 for Orazio, your time of scripture, meditation, and music on KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. One of the clearest messages of the Bible is that some things will not be clear to human beings. But the Bible is also clear that God is more trustworthy than our imperfect knowledge. On the next Sing for Joy, you will hear music that trusts without claiming to know everything. Join us. Sundays at noon on KFUO. creation is the result of a fluke and accident is ridiculous. A hundred thousand monkeys typing on a hundred thousand typewriters, even after a million years, would never produce the works of William Shakespeare. But they might produce several episodes of Wrestling with the Basics Saturday mornings at 9 a.m. On air or on demand. A click away 24 hours a day at KFUO.org. Welcome back, everybody, to Thy Strong Word. I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa. We're looking at 1 Samuel chapter 1, just talking about how this story is, uh, you know, the good and the bad. It's not like this is a sanitized or, you know, just a whitewashed kind of story right here. It's given us everything. And in that way, it fits a lot of the stories in the Old Testament, whether it's the stories of how Abraham, you know, was, was lying about his, his wife and, 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 you know, he said, hey, guys, like, here, she's my sister, you know, treat her well, you know, and, and we're all reading that, like, what, you know, what, what is Abraham doing? So, no, uh, yeah, th this, is a, this is a story that isn't pulling any punches and it's just giving you both the good and the bad. And we want to talk a little bit about <clears throat> the, the, the bad here in just a minute. Uh, with our guest here, we got Pastor Paul Kane, pastor at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Sheridan, Wyoming. If you've got a question or comment for me and Pastor Kane, give us a call if you're listening live. 
1-800-730-2727. Or if you're in St. Louis, 314-821-0850. You can also hop on the live stream, facebook.com slash H.A. Espinosa. Got a couple questions there. Uh, I want to talk about this one about um, the polygamy uh, comment there. Um, also, you can send questions in via email, kfuo at kfuo.org. Got a few questions uh, coming in uh, via email. Want to talk, uh, yeah, one, one of these about the, the speaking in the heart. Um, it's really fascinating how, you know, we, we think of silently praying as just kind of a normal thing, but Eli sees it and assumes that she's drunk. So I want to talk about that a little bit. Uh, but uh, so, yeah, so we can email your questions as well. I want to thank our underwriters at the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Thank you guys for your support of Thy Strong Word, their website, lhfmissions.org. So uh, let's get back to this, though, uh, you know, the, the story that's, you know, warts and all. So you, you've got, you know, he's got two wives, and uh, it, it's pretty clear, I think, from the story um, why he has two wives, <laughs> that he didn't have any children with the one, and he's got uh, a number of children, sons and daughters, right? Now, I mean, later on, he, he says, he makes this comment that he, he was saying, like, you know, does he does he sound kind of tone deaf? Well, maybe so. I don't want to take a look at that. But he says, you know, am I not more to you than 10 sons? That's unclear if, if that means that his other wife had, you know, 10 children, or if... Uh, or if it's just kind of, you know, hyperbole, right? Um, but but in any case, you know, it's like it's clear what's going on. Um, you know, this man, like, took a second wife, uh, so he would have children um, and not be childless. And, uh, you know, that's something that happened in the Old Testament, but something, as you were saying, you know, that God repeatedly says, don't do that. But, I mean, I mean, then again, the Old Testament's constantly showing us that people do this left and right, right? I mean, God says, don't worship other gods, and they keep doing that too, right? They do. Um, there's at least 15 Israelite men, including two of the patriarchs that are portrayed as polygamous. Uh, Abraham, Jacob, Gideon, David, Solomon, Lamech, Esau, Ahab, Jehoiachin, Jeremiah, Asher, Shaharim, Rehoboam, Rehoboam's sons, Abijah, Jehoram, Joash, Zedekiah. It's it's overwhelming, but it. My impression is most men only have one. Uh, no man in the New Testament is specifically uh, portrayed as having more than one wife, but Josephus from history tells us that Herod the Great, the infamous Herod the Great, had multiple wives. Yeah. You can go to uh, back to the Pentateuch and find laws specifically for cases of polygamy. Uh, what we read here in chapter 1 of 1 Samuel sounds a lot like Exodus 21.10. If he takes another wife for himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. Deuteronomy 17 has uh, a law limiting Israelite kings. Deuteronomy 21 talks about inheritances, anticipating that there are going to be problems with jealousy and inheritance law, especially if there are um, children and one yeah. wife is loved and, and one isn't. 
Yeah, no, that, that that's a good point that like this is um that there's all the details too kind of speak to this. I mean, um even even actually when it, when it talks um you mentioned the word like rival there, like when when I when I read that I was thinking back on um oh where was that? It was in uh it was like in Leviticus. I, I Leviticus uh, hmm. 18, 18, you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, right? So it didn't say anywhere in the text that these two are sisters. But uh, there, there's just kind of this idea of, you know, as you were saying, there's other texts as well, where there is a, um, I mean, clearly there's a categorical prohibition against polygamy, um, or at least in the case of bigamy here, right? Uh, but on top of that, there are there are rules that say, well, if you do this thing, which is not good, then you you can't make it even worse and add insult to injury, right? You know, and so there's limitations yeah. um, and and exclusions on on top of that. Not none of that ever saying that it's ever okay. Like like you know, as long as they're not related, or as long as you you know give Hannah a double portion, then you're you're in the clear. But but just you know, yeah, it, this there it basically it's like you know you can upgrade your misdemeanor to a felony, <laughs> right? So it's like you know don't yeah. don't go and make it worse. Paul reminds us that Christian marriage is a reflection of the relationship between Christ and his church. There's one bride, there's one bridegroom, and that still is God's will for us. Um, But I like your illustration of the misdemeanor and the felony. I'll have to borrow that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, it's—you've got, got like, stuff like that, I think, kind of throughout um, throughout the scriptures where— and I think it's really kind of indicative also of whether where there's a law that gets frequently broken, right? That you, you kind of have to go and step in and provide extra guidance, right? And uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, it does speak, I, I think, to the mercy of God that He doesn't just say like, "Well, you know, all the people who break this law, we're going to execute them all, so there's no need for additional laws." <laughs> um, but but He says, you know, I. I know you guys. Uh, I mean, <laughs> isn't that kind of what like the conversation between Moses and God is right in a in a Exodus, right? Like, I know these people; they're stubborn. <laughs> they don't listen. Right. Right. Um, and, and God, and yet God shows uh, mercy for the people involved here. Um, so you know, Hannah is the recipient of of some mercy. It, it is it is really fascinating how it's described. But it says you know, but to Hannah. He gave a double portion because he loved her, um, you know. And I don't think we necessarily are to take that as, um, like he didn't love his other wife, or you know, uh, something along those lines. But I, I think what's what's just trying to be said here is that I, I guess Hannah was his favored wife. Like, like you know, Hannah, I think was. Uh, the one which I think kind of maybe goes back to that suggestion that maybe Hannah really was the first wife, um, you know, the one he you know fell in love with, and so to to his credit, he's uh you know he's treating her well, um, and he's taking care of her right. Um, so right. You, you have that going on, and, and the thing with verse eight, you know, um, you know, I I, I mean, is is this him being tone deaf or I? I don't know. I, I think I, I tend to read this a little bit sympathetically, like, like, like he's trying to, I mean, like he's might be doing a bad job, but, but he's, but he's trying to be yeah. consoling. Right. He, and he's like, 
know, hey, Hannah, yeah, I, I know you don't have kids, right? But, but you know, you have me, right? And I'm taking care of you. Yeah, because I think in the Old Testament context, you thought of children in a lot of ways as people who are going to take care of you, right? Like you're getting old and you don't mm-hmm. have pensions <laughs> or, you know, IRAs or anything like that. And so he's like, hey, look, I'm, I'm taking good care of you. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a Levite. We're, God's taking care of us. We're doing well. You know, like, and, and I love you, and I'm giving you a double portion. Like, you're, you're going to be fine. You know, don't don't be afraid that, you know, think think of uh, Leah, right? How Leah was, um, right, right. you know, the thing with Leah and Rachel, how it was like, oh, I don't have a kid. If I don't have a kid, um, you know, Jacob's never going to love me. You know, Lord, please give me children so that my husband will love me. And, and so— um, you know, he's, he is, I think maybe speaking to that fear that Hannah might have at the time, like, you know, is, is he going to stop loving me? Cause I don't have kids for him. So maybe, maybe it's, it's not so terrible what he yeah. says, even if it's not the best thing. Yeah. He gets, he gets points for trying and for being there. He didn't <laughs> abandon her. He didn't yeah. turn her out. This is not a Hagar moment. Um, but yeah, yeah right. parallel with Rachel and Leah, that one may be more apt. Yeah, yeah, right. Just, just the the, the rivalry and, and the you know, well, if we can have kids, then then I'll be loved more. And I, I mean, and, and in that sense, I, I think it does set it up um, for for some big questions that link back to us. Then, in terms of you know, what here in this story is everyone valuing, or perhaps even idolizing, right? Because uh, on the one hand. Um, it, it seems like everyone in the story on a certain level is faithful, right? They, they go up and they make the sacrifices. They, they, they pray to the Lord. Um, they make vows to the Lord, right? And it's not to bail, right? So it's kind of like you were saying, you right, only get some right. points for trying, <laughs> right? Right. But, but the thing is, it seems like everyone in this story here is, is just kind of off though. You know, I mean, like, like Hannah just has to have a son, um, just, you know, and, and she's not going to be happy about anything until she does. Um, Elkanah is, is to, you know, to, to be fair, is the same way because he was so insistent that he have children that he married a second uh, woman. Um, you know, so it's kind of like everyone in the story is kind of wanting to have their cake and eat it too. Yeah, even, even Eli, his comments about yeah. her, well, what we're told, he took her to be a drunken woman may say more about him than about Hannah. But I love how things switch up by verse 28. Therefore, I have lent him, I have dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. So in in a way, to uh, finish your idolatry comment, so many parents do idolize their children, try to be their buddy instead of their parent, or even have as a false god the idea of having children or the right number or the right gender, she's flipped that on its head and gave him back when he was weaned. I mean, the boy was a boy, verse 24. The child was young, three years old. A mom giving up a three-year-old? He's not even Uh, in kindergarten yet. Yeah. Wow. All all this stuff in the Bible that— all this stuff in the Bible that I just can't even uh, think about with a straight face anymore now that I have kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah the, 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 the worst thing is, is when I watch the Prince of Egypt, you know, the, the 
the uh, the DreamWorks adaptation of the Exodus story and the opening number right. with with uh, with Moses's mother singing to baby Moses as she sets him in the basket. I, I can't even I can't even describe that without getting misty eyed now it's it's ridiculous but uh, <laughs> but i i really i really appreciate your point though that one of the greatest difficulties um that we have as christian parents is avoiding the temptation especially in our western society uh to idolize our children um and i mean it, it's it, it's i mean i think it happens in every age you know here in this ancient mm-hmm. context they idolize having children um you know here as it was with Rachel and Leah, you know, a, a woman in that situation, she feels like she has no value unless she has a child. Whereas, you know, all of us um, who have faith in God should be seeing our our value as His as His sons and daughters, as His creatures, um, and not in what we accomplish or in, in our abilities and our or, or any of the rest of it. So, mm-hmm. I, I do like your point that in the end, we are we are. God is really being gracious to Hannah here, and even if Hannah is perhaps unduly bent on having a child, um, he's moving her to the right spot where she's seeing that the child, um, and then ultimately even life itself, is on loan from God. I mean, this is exactly what Paul was talking about in First Corinthians about stewardship. We 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 change our perspective and we look at it all as none of this is ours. My, my life isn't mine. My kids aren't mine. I mean, I mean, ultimately, it's all God's, and I'm just taking care of this stuff for Him for a time. And and that's a really hard thought, I think, that for for us as Western uh, modern parents to think of it like that. That you know, as as you were saying rightly, you know, like instead of like you know, like oh, this kid's mine. I'm gonna you know make sure that I'm you know buddy buddy with them, and they're they're always gonna like me, and you know all the rest of it. And instead, seeing it as you know what, this child is ultimately God's child. He's given me uh, the gracious task of, you know, taking care of this child for however many years. You know, may, may God grant that yeah. we can take care of our children more than three years. Uh, but we're, we're, we're just really taking care of them for a time um, on his behalf. Yes, it's, it's back to stewardship, as you mentioned. Um, they are a blessing from God. I'm blessed to be headmaster of a school, and we get started the yeah. the day after Labor Day. Uh, I love the attitude of the mother of our Lord, where she says, yeah. let it be to me according to your word. And depending on the Lord as our insurance policy instead of children mm-hmm. or an insurance policy is really the best thing. It helps us avoid that idolatry, but also entrust ourselves to God's uh, rich grace and mercy, single, married, with children, not blessed in that way. Uh, We can certainly understand uh, what she's going through. Um, It's it just tugs at our heartstrings, most definitely. And to have the yeah. echoes of take your son, your only son who you love, and yeah. sacrifice yeah. him to me and how that gets us brought into the New Testament with, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son for us. Um, it. It may have cost us nothing, but it cost the Father everything in Jesus. And then that picture of of giving, 
um, and, and giving over entirely even. This, I think, gets to the uh, the wordplay that's going on with the the name Samuel itself, and we should maybe talk about that a little bit here, because um, I, I yes. think that you know we skipped ahead here to the, to the end in verse twenty eight, um, you know, where she says, "says you know, therefore I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives, he's lent to the Lord." Um, earlier in verse twenty, you know, it says, "In due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord.'" And so this is one of these, uh, you know, wordplay uh, moments, like where it seems like all these biblical names come from. And, and the footnote for the ESV is helpful. Samuel sounds like the Hebrew for um, heard of God. Um, and, and I think yeah. there's actually a number of names that kind of basically mean, you know, gift from God or abundance of God. I mean, Elizabeth actually is kind of means something similar there. Um, but but I think there's yeah, maybe even more L, going on with the name Samuel. God. Right. Yeah. So, what what do, you, what do you think is going on here then with with the name Samuel and and maybe some of the other connections that we're supposed to be seeing? Well, it may be more than one thing at the same time. Uh, his name is mm-hmm. El. His name is God. Could easily suggest uh, his parents' confession that Samuel's God is the one true God, the only in the midst of all of the idolatry and even worthless uh, men that we meet in chapter 2 in a fuller way. Uh, Yes, the uh, heard of God, heard by God, the the preposition could go either way, that the name Samuel sounds like these other Hebrew words— which just makes it fun to look into the original languages, even in a small way, as a start, uh, if you don't want to go through a, a formal yeah. class for the whole thing. It's, yeah. it's a confession that the God is the one true God, and he has been gracious and merciful to us, his power is stronger than our weakness and barrenness. Yeah, that, that's um, that's really interesting. I like your uh, your idea there with um, his name is uh, Ale, because yeah, because you could, you could take that with the consonants instead of a uh, Shemuel. You could you could make it Shemoel, you know, which would be you know mm-hmm. his name is is mm-hmm. Ale. Um, and if and if it does mean that, uh, I I think the idea, you know, as we've been saying, you know, name being less like what what you call him because uh, ale, you know, was was not really that particularly distinctive, um, especially in this context. Um, I think a, a lot of uh, gods would have had some kind of ale element in their name in in the in the region. Um, Though though it could refer to something a little bit more specific, but still not even as specific as like Yahweh, for example. Uh, but I think to the idea of his reputation, especially as in his reputation as a faithful God, right? I, I think that's a little bit uh, yeah. one of the big themes here, actually, where, <clears throat> you know, it just says there in verse 19, right? And the Lord remembered her, right? Or uh, where where else was it here? Yeah, there it is. What what Elkanah says in verse twenty three, uh, mm-hmm. do what seems best to you. Wait until you've weaned him. Only may the Lord establish His word. So yeah. I think throughout there's this idea of God being faithful, and that you know even even if from our perspective it seems like God's 
letting us down or, you know, Hey God, why, why haven't you, why have you still not given me this job? Why have you not still given me this chance? Why have you still not, you know, uh, removed this, this illness or this, or, or, or even this, uh, this person who's really just, you know, vexing me, um, from my life. Uh, but that in the end he shows himself faithful. So, you know, I, I do like the idea of, uh, yeah, Shemuel, um, I, I think that I think that Shemuel though um, has a lot going for it. It's it's actually uh, pointed that way in the Masoretic text. Um, I, I think one of the other things though, which I think is kind of fun too, is at the end there's a little bit of a I don't know maybe maybe this is a a, a pun or not, um, but at the end uh, you, you get uh, another related or similar sounding word, which is um, Shaul instead of and so instead of a uh, uh, Shemuel, you, you just kind of take out the, the M as it were, you just get, uh, mm-hmm. Shaul, which, which is to say he is Lent. Um, so, so his name even, even kind of plays on, on that side of things. Um, and, and I, and I really like that idea because it's just this idea that, you know, we, uh, God hears our prayers, right? We ask him for things and, ultimately uh, the best thing that we can do then is to give those things back to him right god gives us his gifts so that we can give them to others and that we would sacrifice them um just as, as you were saying of course like with as he has shown us with his own son so uh, i think there's yet another connection maybe with a little bit of the the word play there that she has asked she says you know Sha'alti, right i've asked from him he he heard right uh and, and then you know, she she lends back to God, all, all using these these uh, very very similar sounding words. Indeed, and um, I don't know if there's intentional Hebrew um, foreshadowing, because this Hebrew word for lent or dedicated does look yeah. a lot like Saul. The it does the first actually, king. yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know. I actually had not thought about that. What uh, might might be going on there? Um, but but yeah. So def- definitely, just a lot of a lot of connections, like a, a lot that's just very suggestive and stuff to just kind of ponder. But I think getting back to that idea that we are rightly using God's gifts when we recognize that we're but stewards of them, and uh, they're, they're from Him and they go back to Him really, you know, and, um, they're not meant for us to, to hoard. And so whether that's even our own children. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a lot, I think there for us as well. Um, let's talk though a little bit here about, you mentioned Eli, this is interesting, right? And so, uh, one, one of the questions that came in was, okay. Um, you know, what, what is this, you know, speaking in her heart, it says, right. Um, it's fascinating that Eli would, would, for our perspective, be like, jump to the conclusion of you're drunk, <laughs> right? Like, you know, because we, we think to ourselves, well, don't people pray quietly all the time? Um, you know, yeah. so, so one of the questions that came in over email was, is this speaking in her heart that Hannah does, uh, is it like the, uh, the groaning uh, mentioned in Romans 8, 26, um, which is that, is that what the, what the groanings of the spirit too deep for words? Is that that for uh, that text? to look at it uh romans 8 yeah i i do like Uh, that yeah that assertion that the spirit does pray uh in in groans that words cannot express abba father 
I found something. Um, our school here is a classical Lutheran school. And one of yeah. the things we learned from the classical period is it was a very um, rare thing in classical times, biblical times, for someone to just sit there and read something silently to themselves. Right. right. Uh, curling up with a good book, that was just not done because there weren't that many scrolls. That's right. Uh, even well, in the time of the New who, Testament. Who could read. Oh, Most yeah. Most people couldn't. So for someone to just sit there silently and read was virtually unheard of until the modern era. And yeah. so, too, if you're praying, it would usually be done out loud so people would know what's going on. And Eli, he only sees her lips moving and takes her as a, a drunken woman. And she says, no, 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 I'm, I'm troubled in spirit. I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Uh, don't regard me as a worthless woman, and then not knowing what her prayer was because she said it silently in her heart, right. in her mind. He says, go in peace, not merely have a nice day, but he yeah. blesses her. Uh, how amazing yeah. that um, yeah. the Lord they, they, they leave on favorable promise. terms. Right, they, they, yeah. they leave on favorable terms, even, even though it was kind of a rocky start, right? And you know, and she respectfully says, "Let your servant find favor in your eyes." So at no moment does she say, "Like, ah, oh, you know, you mean priest, <laughs> you're not very compassionate," you know. Don't, you know um, but yeah, I think I think you're right that he he in some ways kind of makes a natural assumption for his cultural context, which is like, you know, eh, her mouth's moving, but there's no sound coming out. Like, you know, you know, is, is she okay? Right? Yeah. Um, but right. yeah, it, it's it's because of this exceptional um, anxiety and vexation here, and we're, we're gonna want to talk about that more too, because I think the bit about wine is, well, it's a hint for what's coming. But thank you so much, brother. Yeah. A lot, a lot of good connections here. Um, can't even look at it all, but you got the ball rolling for us. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Privilege. Everybody, that was Pastor Paul Kane at Emmanuel and Sheridan, Wyoming. We're going to go on to Chapter 2, look at that song, that prayer of Hannah next time. Looking forward to that. Until then, everybody, I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa. Peace. Your support is vital for this program to continue. You can make a gift safe, secure, and easily online at kfuo.org. Thank you for listening and supporting Thy Strong Word.